Thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. It is our prayer that it is a blessing to you. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the message. First, we would love to connect with you. You can find us on Facebook at New Grace BC. Also, be sure to check out our website, reachingroanoke.com. There, you can find out more about who we are and where we are going as a church. Again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. When you hear the word alien, uh, what comes to mind? Sigourney Weaver. Okay, that's a new one. But I know why you're t- saying that, the movie Alien. Anybody else? UFO? What do you say? E.T.? E.T., all right. Uh, who? In-laws, okay. Some people, uh, when you say alien, most people think about that. Visitors from out of space, or maybe they think of uh, people, illegal aliens, people who are here in this country illegally. But if we go with the dictionary definition, this is what it says. An alien is a person who has been estranged or excluded, unlike one's own, strange, and not belonging. Uh, Like most of you, when I think of the word alien, I think of a visitor from out of space. But when I read this definition, uh, I had kind of a change of mind and a different perspective of what an alien is. And so after reading this definition, to me, an alien is someone who doesn't seem to fit in. Uh, They don't fit in with a a group or they don't fit in with people because they are different in some way. They are different from a group of people. And so as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, we, we began a series last week called Spiritual Aliens. And we called it that because Paul is writing to a group of people. Of course, the church at Ephesus was a very unique church, a very uh, powerful church, a growing church in a very difficult climate. But it was also a unique church in that it was made up of people from all different backgrounds. There were converted Jews in the church at Ephesus, people who had lived the law. They had gone through all the rituals and all the sacrifices and everything that was they were supposed to do under the law. And then they understood that Christ came as their Messiah and they accepted his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for their sin. And they put their faith and trust in him and they became new believers. They became a new creature. But also in that, in that church were Gentile believers And the Gentiles, of course, were not raised in the Jewish tradition. Most of them were pagans or had false religions. And in fact, the Jews and the Gentiles hated each other throughout history. It was so severe that if a Jewish boy or a Jewish girl were to marry a Gentile, then the Jewish family would have a funeral for them and consider them dead and never talk to them again. It was a very uh, stressful relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. And now these two different groups of people have come together as believers in Christ to worship God together, but they don't belong with each other, but they also don't belong with the world anymore. The converted Jews, once they converted to Christianity and accepted Christ as their Savior, they were ostracized from their Jewish religion, their Jewish family, their Jewish friends. 
many of them lost their homes, lost their families, uh, were persecuted because they had left the Jewish religion. So they didn't belong to the Jews anymore. And the Gentiles were the same way. Their Gentile family as well would kind of reject them and, and, and per- persecute them because their belief in this new Jesus. And they kind of didn't fit with the world anymore. They were different. And so they really didn't belong anywhere except together. God had chosen a group of people who ended up not belonging to change the world. And he didn't pick who we would normally suspect. You know, if you're going to pick someone to do an incredible task, you're going to pick the most talented. You're going to pick the wealthiest. You're going to pick the best looking. You're going to pick the the greatest you can. But God chose a group of outcasts. God chose a group of misfits. God chose a group of aliens to change the world. He didn't select the most spiritual, the most educated, the most experienced, but they are who he called and who he used to establish the church and to change the world. This is what J.D. Greer says about this group of believers. He says, There has never been a more unlikely group of people selected for a greater task. God chose an incredibly unsuspecting group of people to do the greatest work that had ever been done. And so last week as we began this series, we saw uh, that this group of aliens who, who didn't belong in society, who really didn't belong anywhere, they were united, the Jews and the Gentiles, they, they became united together. Today as we continue, we're going to see what united them. So look in your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse number 17. We're going to read down through verse 22, finish up the the chapter uh, this morning. The Bible says, And he came and came and preached peace to you which were far off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And are built upon, the, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Uh, in whom with all the building fitly formed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom ye also are built together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. So last week as we began this series, we, we looked at two things. First we saw what made this group of aliens, uh, how we, what made them a group of aliens, what made them different, what made them odd from the rest of the world and each other. And then we saw how they were united. Today, verse 17 and 18, it gives us kind of a recap of what we saw last week, that Jesus came and he, he brought these two, these two groups. He brought the Jews and the Gentiles together. Look at verse 17 again. It says, And came and preached peace to them which were afar off. That's the Gentiles. They were afar off from God. They were not part of God's chosen family. They were not part of the, the line of Abraham. And so they were afar off. And sometimes we can get kind of confused about this. We look at the Old Testament and think, well, I guess all Jews got to heaven. But in the Old Testament, they got saved the exact same way they get saved in the New Testament. The Jews of old, they had to get saved believing that God would send a Redeemer. 
that God would send a perfect sacrifice to die for their sins and to do what they could not do to perfectly fulfill the law, that He would come, He would die for them, and He would redeem them. They may not have known all the the details and all the the things that were going to happen, but they looked by, by faith forward to the day Jesus would come. And in the New Testament, we look backwards to the day Jesus did come. And so not every Jew went to heaven. But every Jew heard the gospel as God had given it to Moses and the prophets. Every Jew had it preached to them. Gentiles were excluded. Gentiles, they, I mean, there were, you can look through the scriptures, there are Gentile converts uh, in the Old Testament, but they, weren't, they didn't go to the Jews. I mean, they didn't go to the Gentiles. It was strictly for the Jews. And so they were, the Gentiles were afar off. But then he also says, and to them which were nigh, this is the Jews. So Jesus came to both groups. What Jesus brought as the Prince of Peace had an incredible impact on both of these groups. It gave them a right relationship with God the Father. When Jesus came and he lived a perfect life, he fulfilled the law of God perfectly. He died on the cross and shed his blood. He was buried and rose again three days later. When he did that, he did for the Jews what they could not do. He redeemed them and he made a way for them to come to God. And so no longer do they have to go through the sacrifices and go through the high priests. That's why when Jesus died, the Bible says the the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God was showing that they no longer had to go through the religion. They never no longer had to go through the high priest to come to God. That through Christ, they could come on their own. So when Jesus came and lived and died for them, he made, a, he made a way for them to have a right relationship with God the Father. But he also did that for the Gentiles. They also could put their faith and trust in his death, burial, and resurrection. They also could be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And they also could be made right with God. And so he took these two groups and he made a way for both of them to be right with God, but that also made a way for them to be right with each other. They hated each other. They despised each other. And Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, not only gave them a way back to God, but gave them a way to have a right relationship with each other. God made a way for both groups to draw near to him and to draw near to each other in relationship. So the relationship between the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles was incredibly significant. Look back at verse number 14. The Bible says, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of the commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make him in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And so what Jesus did was he he took these two different groups and he made them one powerful group together, one family together through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's an amazing moment in history when God makes one group of aliens out of two different groups that hated each other. And a result of Jesus' finished work, both the Jews and the Gentiles who were in Christ have access to God through one spirit. By bringing these two groups together as one, he established his church. 
Jesus clarified for all of eternity that it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, the ground is level at the cross. Jesus made it clear once and for all, your social status doesn't matter. Your race doesn't matter. Your economic status doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what are you going to do with Jesus? John MacArthur said this about him. He said, those who once were socially and spiritually alienated are in Christ, united with God and with each other. Because they have Christ, they have both peace and access and one spirit to the Father. So Jesus, as the Prince of Peace... Jesus, as the Prince of Peace, he established his church, but he also made a new way to categorize every person on earth. Before Jesus, everybody was categorized as Jew or Gentile. Now, everyone's categorized as believer or non-believer. They're either saved or lost. They're either in the family of God or they're an enemy of God. So in verses 19 through 22, Jesus, he, uh, he gives us three defining characteristics about this new group of people, about these new aliens we're going to look at them tonight. First thing about these new aliens is they had a new identity. They had a new identity. Look at verse number 19. He goes, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. They were one thing. They were strangers. They were foreigners. But now, because of Christ, they are something else. So, what is, as believers, what is our new identity? Well, number one, in Christ, I am a new person. This is contrasting who we were before Jesus and who we are after Jesus. Who we were before we got saved, and who we are after we got saved. And this, this contrast of who we were before salvation, who we are now, is seen throughout the New Testament. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. It says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ... Now remember, we, we've seen this through Ephesians, that phrase, in Christ, is Paul's way of talking about salvation. When you're saved, when you accept Christ as your Savior, when you put your faith and trust in Him and His death, burial, and resurrection, you are in Christ. So he's saying, those who are in Christ, therefore if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. See, this, this new creature, this new person that we are, it shows us the new position we have in Christ. It shows us the new freedom we have in Christ. It shows us the new power we have in Christ. And it shows us the new life we have in Christ. We were enemies of God, but now we are saints with a new identity because of Jesus. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what He did. When we began this relationship with God, there was an incredible uh, change that takes place in our lives. Here's what Major Ian Thomas says about it. When you and I received Christ as our Redeemer, He gave us, through His Holy Spirit, the fullness and power of His resurrection. 
He has given us everything we could ever need at any time under any circumstances. The Lord Jesus came from heaven and earth, not just to get us out of hell and into heaven, though he is the only one who can and does if, uh, if we let him, but to get himself out of heaven into us. He gave himself for us to give himself to us the gift of his life so that we may enjoy a wonderful personal relationship with him that never changes. Grasp this well, for otherwise your Christianity will remain very boring, sterile, and impersonal. Christ himself is the very life content of the Christian faith. So Paul is telling us through the the church at Ephesus that we have a new identity. In Christ, we are a new person. But it goes further. Not only do we have already a new person, in Christ, I am a citizen of God's kingdom. This is talking about our stability and security as members of God's kingdom. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, for our conversation is in heaven. Now, to us, that word conversation, like you're talking to someone, you're having a conversation. But in the Greek, that word literally means citizenship. So Paul is saying, your citizenship is now in heaven. That means when you accepted Christ as your Savior, you stopped being a citizen of the United States. You stopped being a citizen of Virginia. You stopped being a citizen of the world. You became a citizen of heaven. So as for our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the moment that you accepted Christ as your Savior, the moment you began a relationship with God, you became a citizen of God's eternal kingdom. So as citizens of this new kingdom, we have a new identity, and it is who we are now, and it is the most important thing about us. So you are not working to earn citizenship in, in heaven. You know, if you weren't born in America, and you want to become a citizen of America, you've first of all got to get here. Then you've got to go through the process of the visas and the paperwork and all the stuff to stay here. Uh, maybe you get a work visa or a student visa. But then if you want to become a, a permanent citizen, you have to go through citizenship classes. You've got to take a citizenship test. And then you have to be sworn in uh, by a judge to be a citizen of the United States. That's not what we're trying to do in heaven. You're not working to be a citizen of heaven. If you're saved, you are a citizen of heaven. It is who you are now And it's the most important thing about you. Who I am is who I am in Christ. That is the most important thing about me as a child of God. So Paul is telling us as a believer, no matter what our background is, no matter where we came from or what we we did in the past or how good we were raised or how bad, no matter who you are or where you came from, As a believer, you have a new identity, but also you have a new community. Again, in verse number 19, it finishes, and of the household of God. Personally, these believers had a new identity in Christ. But since he had brought them together to establish the church, they had a new community. They had a new family. This takes the 
God established relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles to a deeper level. These groups could not have been further apart relationally. Paul says that they are not only citizens of the same kingdom, but they are members of the same family. What does this tell me? This tells me that in Christ, I am a member of God's family. Now, what Paul's talking about here, he's not talking about the relationship between God the Father and us as his children. He's not talking about that relationship of of heavenly father and child. He's talking about the relationship we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, we we say that a lot. We'll use those phrases, you know, brother so-and-so. I was talking to an evangelist this this week, uh, Dr. Ron Lynch. He's going to come and do a revival for us in in June. I was talking to him, and I talked to him, and I said, hey, hey, brother Lynch. You know, we don't use the word sister much. You don't say, hey, sister Kathy. Uh, looks, you know, she's a nun. I think that away. So we don't use, but we'll use the word. Oh, that's my brother and sister. That's my my church family. My brother and sister in Christ. We kind of use that word flippantly. But Paul's really emphasizing here that as a child of God, we are not just God's children, but we're brothers and sisters together. He's emphasizing the the dynamic between brothers and sisters. He's telling former Jews. And former Gentiles that he has made them a family. The, we, we, we are more than fellow church members. We're a family. We have good days. We have bad days. But that doesn't change our relationship. We're still a family. How many of y'all have brothers and sisters? All right. Not a lot of you. I have three brothers and one sister. We, we had some, some difficult times growing up. You know, I told you, my sister, I've got a scar on my arm here where my sister uh, tried to kill me one day. Uh, she came home from, we came home from school together, and I don't, we still debate what happened. Uh, I don't know what happened. Something happened where she just got furious. And as her older brother, whenever your sister gets mad, the best thing to do is just anti- antagonize her. Keep it going. So I did. I can't remember what she got mad about, but I just kept picking on her. And she got madder and madder, and I got madder and madder. She, she threw ammonia on me. She was so mad. And that made me mad, so I kind of ran after her. And then she grabbed a butcher knife and stabbed me. And I have a scar here, which is heart level. So she was trying to kill me, but I jumped. And my mom, when she got home, did nothing. Uh, but, you know, me and my sister, we, we, had some, we had some bad times. We fought a lot as kids. But she's my sister. She tried to kill me, but I love her. She's my sister. We're closer now than we've ever been. You know, my, my other brothers, me and Bryson, he's the one in the wheelchair. We used to fight all the time. He's, he's, he's one of my closest brothers now. My older brother, Jamie, I didn't know him very well because he was gone by the time I was uh, about 12 years old. He was already out of the house and, you know, on his own. But I still, you know, he's, he's my brother. My de- old brother, Damon, the one right above me, uh, me and him get along the least between all of us because he's Jehovah's Witness and I'm not. But even aside from that, we just, our personalities don't, don't go well together. But he's my brother. We may not get along all the time. We may not see eye to eye all the time. But he's family. And I love him. And I do anything I could for him. And I want to be, I'll, I'd be there for them if they need me to. Why? Because they're family. And that's what Paul's saying here. Say, look, you, you may have different backgrounds. You may not get along to, all the time. 
You're going to have differences of opinion. You're going to have differences of uh, where you have maybe you have bad days and good days where you're fighting, but you're not. But no matter what you're going through, you're family. And family doesn't split easily. That's what Paul's talking about. You don't hate your family easily. It takes a lot to break up a family. And so in, in the context of God's kingdom, what Paul's trying to get across here is there are going to be times where they may not like each other, but they're family. So in context of God's kingdom, relationships are non-negotiable. Whether we like each other or not all the time, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are eternally a family. And in a healthy family, there's deep love. You know, me and April, we, we joke about this with our kids all the time, but it's really true, especially with, you know, brothers and sisters. You know, my brothers and sisters, I don't like them all the time. I love them no matter what. I love them when they try to kill me. I love them when we have differences of opinion. I love them when we fight over stupid things. I love them. I don't like them all the time, but I love them and their family. And that's what Paul's trying to get across. So in a healthy family, there's love. But also, there's responsibility. There's sacrifice. There's drama. Those things exist in a family on earth, and those, family exist, those things exist in the family of God. So we need to stop seeing each other as acquaintances and start seeing each other as family. We're not just someone you go to church with. We're family. Church isn't just an event you attend on Sunday morning. Church is a gathering of your family. It's a family reunion we have every single week where we talk to our Father. You will never know the very best that God has from, for you apart from a relationship with Him and a relationship with His family. So as a child of God, you have a new identity. You have a new community. And thirdly, you have a new mission. Look again at verses number 20 through 22. It says, And, and, are, built, <coughs> and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit." As new believers, part of a new family, we have a new mission. Now the imagery that Paul uses here would have been meaningful to those that are receiving this letter. And this time, the temple of God was where the temple was where God dwelt. The Jews believed that that's where God dwelt, that's where God was, and so they would go there to meet with God. The Gentiles weren't even allowed there. But they believe that's where, that's where God dwelt. So to be near the temple was to be near to God. So Paul is telling them that as God's people, as God's children, they are part of a new temple and God dwells in them. And in verse 20, Paul says that they are being built on a foundation and a cornerstone. The foundation is God's word taught to them through the apostles. And the cornerstone, and these, these times the cornerstone was what the entire building rested on. 
And the cornerstone that everything is being built upon is Jesus. He makes everything possible. So in verse 21, he says the whole building is being fit together. God is the one building and establishing this community called the church. So what does this tell us? In Christ, I am part of the mission of God. So what is this mission? Well, we all know it's reaching those who aren't believers, those who are not part of the family, those who are aliens of God and foreigners to God. It is reaching them with the gospel, but it's also discipling those who are believers to grow in their relationship with God. And that's our responsibility as a family of God, to bring more people into the family, but also to help train and teach the younger family, those who are new to the faith, how to be part of the family. And that's what, that's what brothers and sisters do. The older brothers and sisters, they always you know, teach the younger siblings how to, how to get things over a mom and dad, usually try to get them in trouble. But they, they help each other and they, they teach each other traditions and they help each other to encourage you. That's what a family is supposed to do. And that's what Paul says. As a family, your mission, first of all, is to get other people into the family but to love and to teach and to train those who are already part of the family. That's how this new building grows, and that's the mission that we are taking part of. Look at how Paul ends this chapter in verse number 22. He says, In whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. I believe that this was specifically written to the Gentile believers. He's just got done telling both these groups what God has given them and what God has invited them to as a believer. And the Gentiles, they would probably look at that and think, well, I don't deserve to be part of that. So Paul says, you are being built together for a place for the Spirit of God to dwell. You don't deserve it, but that's what you are. See, the Gentiles, they go from not being allowed near the temple in Jerusalem to being told that they represent one of the stones that are a part of the temple. That reminds us that God's invitation is for everyone. The love and the mercy of God is not the property of one group or one religion or one nationality. It is for everyone. What Paul is telling us is that we are united as a family in Christ. So what does that mean for us in 2020 at New Grace Baptist Church? All of us are part of God's family. All of us are brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's not just us who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Other churches who have gospel-believing preachers, and they preach the gospel, and they understand the gospel, and they're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, they are our brothers and sisters too. What Paul is saying is that there's more that unites us than divides us. There's more that keeps us close together than breaks us apart. Will we have disagreements? Sure. Every family does. But we're still family. We're still family together and family sticks together. Family, when it sees another brother or sister doing wrong, corrects that brother and sister in love. Why? To bring them back into fellowship with the Father. Family helps each other when they see someone struggling. Family encourages each other 
when they see someone down. Family sticks together no matter what. And we've always heard those stories about brothers and sisters who would just pick on each other relentlessly. But if someone else picked on the younger sibling, the older sibling step in and take care of it. That didn't happen to my family. My family, they, they, they just joined in. Typically, you know, the older brother or sister would, would join in and help defend the younger. In my family, they're like, hey, that's a good idea. Let's pile on him. But typically, we'd help each other. We're to love each other. Why? Because we're family. We're not just a church. We're family. We should act like family. We should love each other. We should encourage each other. We should correct each other. Because that's what family does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.